0: Hi and welcome or welcome back to self work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I began self work four years ago in order to reach really three groups. Those of you who might already be very interested in psychological or emotional issues, but are looking for another perspective. To those of you who might initially have been diagnosed with depression or anxiety, or maybe you're having a relationship problem that you just can't seem to get through to a solution and you're looking for ideas. But there's also a third group. To those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist's office because you've believed that it's weak or that there's stigma involved. And I want you to hear a psychologist, and that's of course me, talk about therapy and what kinds of things that people in therapy go through. So maybe, just maybe, you might reconsider. Last week's episode was so meaningful to me as it was episode 200. And of course, I hope you laughed at the very last. I've certainly had people contact me and say they did. My audio engineer rammed that by me and I couldn't help but giggle myself. So I hope that episode 200 was a celebration for you as well as for me. Today, I have the distinct pleasure and honor of having a conversation with Terry Chaney. She has actually three books, all of which have been New York Times bestsellers. Her first was The Dark Side of Innocence, which portrayed her growing up with bipolar disorder and trying to figure out what her life was going to be like. Then there was Manic, which was a huge hit about just how her bipolar disorder had affected her adulthood. She's a fascinating person. She was an entertainment lawyer. One of her clients was Michael Jackson. And she counted on her hypomania to really get her through. But in this book, in her most recent book, Modern Madness, I don't think I've ever read a more revealing, transparent, painful, but also almost exhilarating kind of picture of bipolar disorder, how she loved being hypomanic, how she struggled with self-destructiveness that at the time she certainly didn't see as self-destructiveness. She's funny, she's eloquent, she's open, and I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with her and I learned a lot. I've been a therapist for 27 years, but the way she described having bipolar disorder taught me so much. So in this episode, sponsored again by BetterHelp, we're going to hear from Terry Chaney. But before we get to that, I would like you to listen to an offer from BetterHelp. It's very special just for you. When I was approached by BetterHelp now several months ago, COVID hadn't emerged. And I'd maybe conducted a handful of telehealth sessions, mostly when someone was sick and couldn't make it into the office. Now, five months later, I'm even more of a believer in telehealth. It took some getting used to, but actually, clients sometimes seem more relaxed. It fits better into their schedule, and although many have told me they miss seeing me in person, it's still been a very fulfilling relationship. I've even started new patients, and they've told me they had positive experiences, so we've never actually met in person. BetterHelp is rated the number one online therapy service that's available to you wherever you live. Confidential and highly personalized, it's much less expensive than normal talk therapy. You can text, have video chats, or just talk on the phone. You outline what you're looking for and BetterHelp suggests several therapist options for you. If you don't seem to find a way to connect with one, they'll ask you more about what you're looking for and then suggest others. I, of course, tried it out before I was going to recommend it to you, and the two therapists I had sessions with listened well and made great suggestions for me, and one said, actually, I might make myself. I talked about my own panic disorder and a very scary situation I'd been through, and they were caring and thoughtful, and I was amazed at how easy it was to get in touch with them to make time changes, for example. Although BetterHelp can't be there in emergencies, nor could any online provider, they have all kinds of information about what you can do in that special circumstance. And today, BetterHelp has a great savings offer for you. If you use the link trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork, again, that's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork, you can enjoy a 10% discount on your first month of sessions. After five months of seeing how people relate to telehealth, I'd highly recommend it. If self-work has helped you, maybe better help can give you an even more personal experience with therapy. So let's get to my conversation with Terry Chaney, author of Modern Madness. Terry, I want to thank you so much for being here today on Self Work. I know my listeners are just getting accustomed to having guests back on the show, but they said so many great things about my discussion with John Moe, and I just was thrilled. I was going to say so excited, but I was thrilled when y'all reached out and said you would be willing to be on Self Work, and welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I want to talk obviously about modern madness. I've told you previous to starting this interview that I had read it cover to cover and I could not put it down. I knew I had the weekend to read it, but I thought I'll read a little bit Saturday and a little bit Sunday. And my -hmm. husband kept coming up and going, Are you going to stay up here all day?
1: You finished it
0: in two days? Uh, one day, actually. So while, while taking notes. Wow. So. <laughs> I had one question that's kind of a process-oriented question, because when I started the book, I got a little confused, and then I figured it out. I don't want it to surprise other readers. It sounds as... Well, it sounds like Modern Madness is more sort of a series of essays about different parts of your life and different experiences and, and both uh, severely um, manic events or depressed events that you had. And a kind of a, a it was, I felt like I was hopscotching through your bipolar disorder a little bit. Is that the way you meant it to be?
1: That's exactly right. You put it perfectly. Um, it's not a chronological account. It's more aspects of my illness or mental illness in general that I dive into.
0: Well, once I sort of got it, I thought, oh, this is what she's doing. And now if, if readers or listeners wanted to have a more Autobiographical, or, or what did you, you just use a great word? A sequential, yes, okay. yeah, there you go. Sequential um, learning about your bipolar. Which you've written two other books, would do both of them kind of talk about that? Or,
1: well, my first book, Manic, a memoir, is about my life as an adult with bipolar disorder, and my second book, The Dark Side of Innocence, is about my childhood growing up with bipolar disorder. So That should give a pretty complete picture once you've read those
0: two. Well, I tell you, I had not read them, but I'm going to read them because I learned so much. I've been a therapist for 27 years, and I've treated a lot of people with bipolar disorder. And I just, I was reading and I thought, oh my gosh, I know, I've heard these words. And yet you put them so, you were so transparent and so gritty that, you know, sometimes people are, they really struggle to think, can I tell my reality? (laughs) And even in even in the therapeutic relationship. So I want to I want to thank you for that.
1: Well, that was one of my goals that healthcare providers might read this and get a sense of what it's really like inside a person's body or inside their mind. I wanted a visceral feeling to the book. So that sounds great that you had that response.
0: You, you got it. You, you've made that happen. <laughs> so I sat down and I took notes as I was reading and from sort of a psychologist or therapist point of view. And the first one was you described feelings of, kind of a humiliation a few times in the book, and it was enough to get my attention. And I wondered the juxtaposition of the transparency of the book and you still talking about... You know, it embarrasses me when someone asks me if I'm manic or, you know, there was one lady who said, can't you just have a normal conversation? Or someone said that. I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Well, I still have a hard time, believe it or not, sometimes acknowledging that I'm bipolar to people who don't know it. But when you write a bestseller called Manic and it's about (laughs) your life, that cat is pretty much out of the bag. So I've gotten a lot more used to talking to people about it. And as for the intensity with people, um, my emotions are very intense. Sometimes I can modulate that, but most of the time I have very intense reactions. And I read a book by Susan Cain called Quiet.
0: Yes, I've read that book.
1: Marvelous book about introversion, introverts mm-hmm. and extroverts. And it talks about the virtues of being an introvert and wanting depth and intimacy in your interactions. So that made me feel so much better about myself.
0: Well, you know, sometimes one of my nephews tells me I don't have a filter. So
1: <laughs> I've heard the F word before, yes.
0: <laughs> so basically that's more of a past thing that you have felt, the humiliation or the, the feeling self-conscious about it. Now you don't feel it, but that's probably very normal.
1: I think I still feel a little nervous, but my, the response from people is almost always, well, my sister has it or my coworker has it. I have it or I have depression or anxiety. It is amazing. I call it the six degrees of separation effect because everybody knows somebody and they're eager to talk about it. So that's been very encouraging.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that certainly what I have, have a firm belief in is that the more we talk about mental illness or I have panic disorder and I talk about it all the time and I think it's very helpful to do that. I love your manic cheat sheet on page 24. And I'm going to read a little bit of it. I mean, I can get the (laughs) book. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Whoops. I'll turn the book around. So you were about to do something that you would, you would have regretted, and you pulled out this manic or kind of fell out of your purse or something. Yeah. You said, don't change into something sexier. Wear granny panties and flats. Don't make friends with strangers. They're strangers. Don't drink anything but iced tea. Lipton's not Long Island. Don't get naked except a shower alone, and don't shave your legs. Don't try to beguile attractive men or attractive women or cops. Don't pull out your credit card for any reason except if necessary to post bail. Don't call or text or email ever except as noted for bail. Don't cut your hair short. You aren't Audrey Hepburn. Don't quit your day job and don't follow your bliss. What I wondered, though, because when I've been dealing with someone who's manic or hypomanic in front of me, for them to actually have a list that brings them down to earth, it surprised me that yours did.
1: Well, that list was obviously not written when I was manic. It was written afterwards, after consequences, after consequences of being manic and losing my judgment and acting recklessly with men or spending all my money, um, which is a very common thing in mania. And certainly I've done that. Um, but the advantage of having my manic cheat sheet that I do still carry around with me Good. is that it reminds me that I do get manic because there's a point in my mood cycle where I tend to forget that very, very salient fact. Uh, and I don't realize that I might be putting myself in danger. So that's the point of having that. And there, it's taken a lot of time to have the awareness of the illness so that I can sort of separate myself from it a little bit.
0: I've never, as a therapeutic technique, I've never had anybody write out something that concrete and tangible. I think that's absolutely wonderful. I'm Fair. going to incorporate it into my own work.
1: I so, should write one for depression as well. Yeah. I, I haven't yeah. done that yet, but I should.
0: So let's talk a little about when you've been suicidal. You very, very poignantly talked about that you were actively suicidal. You had bought a gun, but you weren't able to legally bring it home. And You said something very similar to what John Moe said. You said your therapist called you every hour because he or she was working and that you, well, just explain what, what happened. I mean, how do you think about that now?
1: Well, I went to buy a pearl handled pistol in Beverly Hills and there was a short waiting period. And that day that I was supposed to pick it up, or I believe it was the next day I was supposed to pick it up. Um, My therapist knew I was feeling suicidal, but he didn't know about the gun. And he kept calling me and calling me and calling me after every patient. And it just made me realize that if I were to hurt myself, I would be hurting a lot more than myself. I would be hurting him. I'd be hurting everyone who loved me. It just became very, it's, it's amazing how small acts of kindness, like a phone call or a text, just letting you know that you're being thought about and that you're loved can interrupt that suicidal ideation and that cycle, that downward spiral. That has happened to me a number of times.
0: I hope the listeners are, are really tuned into this because this is such an important fact that it you you think you can't keep someone from dying by suicide, but you there are small things you can do to at least help give them pause, right?
1: To give them pause is a perfect way to put it. And that because there is something impulsive sometimes about suicide. And mm-hmm. in this case, it was planned out, but just that that momentary recognition of there is a reason I'm here, there's a point to my being here, can just transform you. I I it can be a very small act, it can just be somebody. Smiling at you on the street sometimes and you realize that life is not quite as bleak as you thought it was
0: hmm You explain this in the book But why don't you tell the listeners what you were doing during these years of bipolar disorder?
1: I was a successful entertainment lawyer. I had I, I practiced for about 16 years and I had clients like Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones and the major motion picture studios um, but I was hiding the entire time. I didn't tell anyone except my doctors about my illness. I was absolutely terrified that someone would find out and that I would be fired. I would be ostracized. I'd never work again. I'd never find anyone to love again. Um, so I was hospitalized for a very severe depression and began writing in the hospital about my illness and what I felt in my body as we were discussing earlier. And I started to feel better. It started to lift. And so I kept writing and kept writing. And seven years later, I came out with this book called Manic and it became a bestseller. So it completely changed my life.
0: Did you leave the law then?
1: I happily left the law. Yes, I'm a recovering lawyer. I just wanted to write my entire life and to have this happen particularly to write about something I care so very, very deeply about. It's just been an amazing blessing.
0: When you say you're a mental health advocate, what kinds of things do you do?
1: I'm on the boards of a couple of organizations, the International Bipolar Foundation, which is a terrific organization for anyone. Um, It's now in Europe as well. And also the Sachs Institute at USC. So I do that. I also speak nationally and... I've even spoken in Dubai, of all places. (laughs) Uh, That was exciting. I bet it was. Except it was very hard to bring my medications into the country. Oh, that's that's
0: right. You said that about that story. You told that story.
1: That was pretty awful. But I, I have a lot of people that write to me since my books came out. And I also have a blog on Psychology Today that has over a million readers. And I hear stories from everyone it seems like so many people are eager to tell their stories and i just love being you know a conduit for that because i do think that's how people are going to heal is by disclosing their illness and sure dealing with it
0: well that leads right into my next question which i'd love for you to tell the story about the panel you were on and how they were talking about in very liberal terms about you know the degradation of a label. I would love for you to, to okay. speak about that.
1: <laughs> yes, I was at a panel on mental health and what was it called? Mental health and entertainment, something like that, at USC Film School. And everybody else on the panel uh, was supposedly not mentally ill. I was the only person who was <laughs> representing the entire population of mental illness. But they were filmmakers who had made films about depression or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or suicide. And the moderator was a therapist and asked them, this being California and we're very politically correct, he said, um, you know, is it hard to label your characters? Do you feel like you're, you know, shutting off some of the acting choices or, you know, you're, you feel like you're demeaning them by labeling them and the, all the filmmakers seem to agree with that. And I'm just sitting there in my seat just squirming because I totally did not agree with that. So I finally got the microphone, stood up and said, I really like my label because it got me the right treatment. When I was labeled bipolar, I finally got the right medications that I needed to get better. So if that's what it takes, I'm all for it. I don't see anything humiliating or demeaning about it.
0: That's so interesting. Of course, bipolar is one of those disorders that unfortunately has found its way into pop culture, and people are right. saying, you know, oh, I'm so bipolar, and this kind of thing. And I remember writing a, I think it was a uh, post for the Huffington Post, and it was not all, not all jerks are bipolar. I think it's what <laughs> I, <laughs> told it. they're I just, know. they're just a jerk. Just a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, this is a really, this question I've been bouncing off the walls to ask you because you talked about loving hypomania. And can you, oh gosh, that just rings so true for me as a therapist as I've watched people just love being in that space. <laughs> so first, well, tell folks what hypomania right. is.
1: See, a lot of people don't know about hypomania. They're, they have heard about mania and they think they mix up the two hypomania is a state that often precedes mania. It's a lesser mania, like a little mania, they call it. Um, it's what you think of when you think of mania, it you're euphoric, you're blissful, you're at the top of your game. You just are extremely productive and make connections between all sorts of different things. And, There's something very strange that goes on when you're hypomanic. You're very charismatic. I attract everyone to me when I'm hypomanic. I I must radiate some kind of pheromone because (laughs) men, women, squirrels, I mean, everyone (laughs) just seems to think I'm wonderful and I feel wonderful. So I think I project that Mm -hmm. into the world.
0: So again, what was it about... You know, you, I think you said, but the hypomania is like a sort of Damocles. It's. Do you think that's, you use the term forgetting, do you think that you forget the the depression that's likely to come or do you dissociate from it? Or what, how would you describe that process?
1: It's an interesting process. Not in hypomania, I don't forget my other mood states, but in mania, I do. In mania, I just My judgment is so off that I don't remember that I might come crashing down into a depression. Mm -hmm. Certainly when I'm in a depression, I am convinced that I have never felt any other way. I'm never going to feel any other way. Um, It drives the people around me crazy because they cannot convince me otherwise but it's very helpful to have them try because I do I do listen to my loved ones when they say you know, you've just gotta make it till Thursday. Your cycles are usually four days, hang in there. But I don't think it's dissociation essentially. I think okay. it's more um, like childbirth. You just <laughs> forget.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. You know, Bruce Springsteen, he and I are really good friends. I'm kidding. Of course <laughs>
1: I sat up in my chair
0: (laughs) in an article he wrote that he has to he has counted on his wife so much to let him know when he his depression was getting out of hand and he goes I don't know what would have happened if I didn't trust her voice so that's really important I think
1: family and friends can make a huge difference I have sort of a cause if I can go into that sure please do it's five words and it's just five little words tell me where it hurts I wrote about that in the book, and I think if family and friends say that to someone who's depressed as opposed to giving them advice, telling them to eat more blueberries, you know go exercise get get a good night's sleep I mean when you're depressed you've you've tried everything, and you're just it's not a matter of choice. you do not choose to feel that way, but when someone says to me, Tell me where it hurts it doesn't shut me down the way advice does. It opens me up, and I let some of that darkness and despair out of me. It can be very hard to listen because a depressed person can see the world in very bleak terms. But if you love them and you really want to help, I think that's those five words. Tell me where it hurts. Can really do it.
0: I've called depression like an implosion of the self. Oh, well, that's so- one. I think it's just all that energy caves inward, and it's yeah. just very hard to, to even connect with anything outside of that.
1: It's a chilling image. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, well,
0: you're welcome. But you know what? What you just said a few minutes ago about hypomania, that you you can feel you can realize that there's another feeling state that you have. And I'm glad to hear you say that because that fits in more with my experience of what many people call bipolar 2, which is hypomania and then cycling into depression. It's not full-blown mania. And what people have told me is that with that disorder, that they do get a sense of, recognizing both the ceiling and the floor, right. you know, that they, they're, they're drifting somewhere in between that, but they never forget about the floor, nor they didn't forget about the ceiling. And I thought the way I read your book, I thought for you that didn't happen with the hypomania. So I'm glad to hear you say that.
1: Yeah, hypomania is definitely different than mania. Okay. It's, you, you have much more of your brain intact, I think. It's just mm-hmm. your judgment is still intact. Mm-hmm.
0: Which for you is more prevalent or has been more prevalent?
1: Fortunately, I've had more hypomanic episodes and I've had full-blown manic, Um, but mostly I get depressed, which really is not fun and I wish Mm -hmm. it was the other way around, but it's not. Mm -hmm. But I'm what they call a rapid cycler, so I Mm -hmm. go very quickly in between moods and even in the course of a day, I can shift moods.
0: Well, let's talk about rapid cycling then, because a lot of people are not going to understand what you mean.
1: Well, bipolar disorder is a disease of shifting moods or an illness of shifting moods. And when you're a rapid cycler, you can cycle very quickly. There's actually something called ultra radiant rapid cycling. And that means you can shift moods in the course of a day. Um, I can be very ecstatic or I can be very down or I can be very uh, Uh, sexy or I can be very removed you know it just it's hard to keep track of me when that happens and Mm. it's fortunate in some ways because my cycles are generally four days of depression followed by four days of mania four days of hypomania it sort of cycles that way but for so many people I know their manias or depressions last for months and I I simply can't imagine how hard that must be Mm. Um, the only problem with being a rapid cycler really for me is that it's very hard to treat because you're chasing moods like a comet's tail. You know, it's going so quickly.
0: Yeah, I've had some rapid cyclers and it is, it's much more puzzling and complex to to try to help them, one, understand what's going on with right. their own minds and then try to come up with some behavioral strategies to help.
1: Well, it's hard for the other people in your life too because… yeah you know, what do you believe? I feel like the girl who cried wolf, you know, am I, am I ecstatic, as I was saying, or am I, you know, really suicidal? I mean, what do you believe? Yeah,
0: that's, yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. And it's like a kaleidoscope, I guess.
1: Yes, it is a kaleidoscope. Yes.
0: So you've also published this book at a time when certainly our country is is facing all kinds of struggle with systemic racism. And you talk a lot in the book about how you were so lucky to be a a white woman, middle-aged woman, who was seeking medications for these things and treatment. And can you speak a little bit about, I'm sure being on these boards and being a speaker, you're hearing a lot from people of color and other minorities.
1: Yes, I think we are not serving people of color very well in the mental health field. I think there's a tremendous need for more providers who are culturally competent, is the term that's Mm -hmm. used. People who understand what mental illness means in different communities, because it can be very different. Even though I'm a middle-class white woman... In America, I still face difficulty getting um, insurance for my doctors, or and my medications are just unbelievably expensive. So I can only begin to imagine what it must be like if you have socioeconomic barriers or language barriers to to access. Um, there's a terrible statistic that I learned. I don't know if it's in the book, but when I was researching, I learned that. Over the past 15 years, the suicide rate among young black women has risen 182%. And that's not, you're not mishearing me, 182%.
0: My gosh.
1: It's really, it's a national trauma, a national tragedy.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I I know that that's certainly far exceeding what's the national average. I mean, far, far exceeding.
1: Well, you wouldn't believe what some statistics on suicide in in America, another person dies every forty seconds. That so I know. Mm-hmm. there is a mental health and suicide epidemic at the moment and it's it really needs to be looked at right now. I don't think we can wait. I think it's important right now while while we're in this sort of greater awareness. Mm-hmm. about our health i think we really need to include mental health in that
0: i know as a therapist i've gotten many more seminar brochures and things like that on cultural competence and,
1: right. and
0: yeah so it's it's definitely coming through to clinicians that at least the people who are leading these seminars want you to they're suggesting hey take this it's worth your while so and it that's obviously terrific. is that's um, just terrific You know, I I also read with a smile on my face because I just published a book on perfectionism and it's linking to depression, how one medical doctor just said you're far too articulate to be bipolar and then turned around and also said but if you convince me you are bipolar, then the pain you're feeling must be anxiety. It's like it was black and white. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, that guy, I think, was just a jerk. Um, <laughs>
0: one of those jerks.
1: One of those yeah. those jerks we were talking about. I think that you really can't always fault doctors, though, um, because people don't often have a vocabulary for what's going on in their mind and in depression and can be very difficult to write about. So I know it's difficult to talk about. We really need a vocabulary for mental illness And I'm hoping that Modern Madness and my other books will start to provide that so that people can read about it and say, yes, that's how I felt. I'm going to tell my doctor and he can Mm -hmm. help me. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was a a very skilled clinician who should have known better, but they Mm -hmm. exist. The stigma still exists.
0: Yes, it does. Definitely. You talked a lot about how you were frustrated that it was called mental illness. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, I, I don't like that term. I would prefer. <laughs> a
0: lot of people don't.
1: I really, because it, it's a physical illness. Believe me, when you're depressed, you feel it physically. There's a, mm. for me in particular, there's something called psychomotor retardation that happens. And a lot of people don't know that term. And I think they should, because what happens in depression is you get almost paralyzed physically your will, your, your motivation, and your body get to the point where they just can't move. And for example, I have a pen sitting here on my desk at the moment. If I was depressed and I wanted to reach out and get that pen, I would have to stare at it for 15 minutes just to get my body to make that gesture. It's absolutely the worst part of depression. It terrifies me. Um, and I don't think enough... Clinicians really look into it, because I wrote a blog post about it in Psychology Today, and I got flooded by comments that I had this, I have this, and I didn't know it had a name. I thought I was the only person who ever felt that way. And uh, psychomotor retardation is a very physical.
0: As a clinician, that, that phrase, I knew that phrase, I know what it is. But Frankly, I haven't seen a lot of it, with some definite unique circumstances where I did. Um, but then again, I'm in you know a small town in Arkansas, and so I don't know exactly how that affects it. But and I'm I'm in private practice; I'm not in a hospital setting, so it may be that I just don't see it as much because the people that will pick up the phone and make an appointment with me right. are the people that are. So so it was really wonderful to be reminded about that.
1: That's great, and I never. See my therapist when I'm um, that depressed because it's just too much to ask me to get out of bed to go Mm. somewhere. And I'm really hoping that the advent of telehealth will make a difference because I notice I can talk to him on the phone some of the time when I'm that way, but I I simply can't uh, get out of bed. It's just too much.
0: Have you stayed with the same therapist over the years?
1: 30 years. And he's hiring. And my I also have a doctor who manages my medications called the psychopharmacologist and he's retiring after 26 years. So I am grieving them both. I love them.
0: Yeah, well, it was obvious that the relationship between you and your doctors or your, your treatment providers, whatever you want to call them, because that that definitely came across in the book for sure.
1: So important. For, for therapy to work, you have to have good relationships and that's one of the problems with people of color not having, um, you know, a really close relationship with their doctor because the doctor doesn't understand their particular circumstances that really gets in the way of therapy as I'm sure you would agree.
0: Yes, it does. In fact, I'm thinking about some of the African-American women after the murder of George Floyd, I, the very next session, I said to all of them, I think I've seen three or four. Okay. What is, you know, tell me how this affects our relationship and what do I, you know, how can I help you not being, you know, I don't have the same color skin you have and tell me about your experience. And to a T, all of them said, you know, you'd be amazed at how many people have said nothing to me, but I knew you would say something, but, and I trusted that you'd say something, but how so many people have, it's like it didn't exist.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, what you amazing. did there was the equivalent of saying, tell me where it hurts. Mm-hmm. You allowed them to open up about with the terrible things they were feeling, and you listened.
0: Well, you can learn that way, right? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. um, so, I
0: also want to talk about, because you you gosh, you put words to ideas that I've had and just sort of ephemeral kinds of things. You talked about mixed episodes, and I I know those exist, and anecdotally, and I think I've seen some of it. I probably missed some of it, <laughs> but can you talk a little bit about and educate us all about what a mixed episode is?
1: Well, first of all, it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> um, what it is is where you have Symptoms of depression that collide with symptoms of mania. So, for example, you might feel all these feelings of um, self-loathing, self-hatred, despair about the future, the kind of feelings you would feel in depression. But at the same time, you have the irritability and energy that you get with mania. So you mix those two together and it's a perfect storm you have the energy to act on your terrible, dark feelings about yourself. So not surprisingly, the mixed episode is where most suicides occur. Sure. And I, I feel for anyone who goes through it, it took me years to learn that they even existed. And I just recently read a study that said 40% of bipolar people will go through a mixed episode at some point. So it really needs to be talked about more. And I think the drug companies are learning about it more as well, because mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of commercials lately that refer to it. So I'm hoping there will be more education.
0: Those commercials haven't reached Arkansas yet. right? <laughs> really,
1: really. there, there are a lot of them out here in California. Oh,
0: good, good. So do you have any personal theories, or do you know of research that you respect that will talk about this um, the etiology of bipolar disorder, wh- where it comes from, what, what quote unquote creates it?
1: Yeah, we're all still looking at that. I think what's, when I was first diagnosed, I was thrilled by the theory that there's chemical imbalance in the brain, that you weren't getting a certain, enough of certain neurotransmitters like serotonin mm-hmm. or dopamine. I, I loved that because it made me feel like it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. You know, There was a physical explanation for it. Um, that's being called into question a little bit these days, but uh, I think it's still the prevailing theory. But there is now research about um, inflammation and how that contributes to, especially depression, inflammation in the body, and that to me is very exciting. I think any any explanation that is um, body specific. And it has, you know, we're always searching for the biomarker that will show that someone has bipolar disorder that's bound to lower stigma um, because then it won't be all in your head anymore. You can actually point to a test and say, aha.
0: What have you done with your anger about being mentally ill or psychoneuroimmunologically ill is what you would say in the book?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. I am not as angry as you might think. Um, of course, I'm not depressed as we're talking. Sorry, we're, I'm not depressed, so I don't feel the same kind of anger I feel when I'm depressed. Turn it off?
0: Right.
1: Um, I feel more sadness about it. But I also feel a sense of gratitude as well, which is really maybe sounds surprising. But there are a lot of good things that come along with bipolar disorder, there's a definitely enhanced creativity. There's no question about that. There's a high correlation with intelligence. And I know from my own circumstances, I've become so much more empathetic toward people who are suffering by going through what I've gone through. I was not trained to be empathetic and humble as an entertainment lawyer. Um, <laughs> no, I don't
0: opposite. imagine so. Yeah,
1: quite the opposite. So, it's a softer and lovelier place to be, mm-hmm. to be empathetic and aware of suffering.
0: Have you had children along the way or no?
1: No, I chose not to have children mm-hmm. because, first of all, I was working so hard. But second, I was struggling so much with my bipolar disorder. At the time, I was thinking about kids. I just didn't want to pass that along. And it is a genetic disease. You know, That was my own very selfish decision in some ways, but I certainly would encourage any woman who's bipolar who wants to have children to go ahead. I think um, that was just a very personal decision based on who I was with at the time.
0: Well, yes. I mean, it sounds like it's got all kinds of contexts that we'd have to have an, another three-hour interview to understand. Yes. So, how how did writing the books begin to change you at all? Do you Do you feel like you have, I mean, obviously it it led you to be a mental health advocate, which is quite a meaningful career for you now. But I wonder if you have more compassion for yourself, you have more compassion for others, but you use the term self-stigma in the book. Yes. I I, I said, is that like shame or what is that? So I wondered how this whole thing has caused you to feel about yourself.
1: Well, I think self-stigma for me is... I consider it a poisonous type of doubt about yourself and whether you're worthy of sympathy or empathy for your mental illness. Um, okay. Whether you're worthy of compassion. Um, I'm fascinated by the, the book that you say you, you wrote, and I'm going to get it when we oh, finish really. this interview, because it, I often wonder, can I really be bipolar if I'm high functioning? You know, how can, how can this be true? Am I lying? Um, Am I pretending to get attention? Why should anyone believe me? Uh, Then of course, I get depressed and I realize it's all very real. But um, I think I'm just hurting myself by thinking that way. It is self-stigma. And I've finally come to realize that self-compassion is essential to living with any chronic illness, whether it's mental or physical. It's been one of the best lessons I've learned in therapy is to have some compassion for myself.
0: Hmm. You know, I I would like to end the interview if we we can. By the way, um, why don't you say something about the virtual reading you're going to
1: have? Oh, yes. Thank you. Uh, There is a bookstore in Pasadena called Romans, V is in victory, R-O-M-A-N-S. And on October 6, I believe at 6 p.m., they will be hosting a virtual reading. So Anyone can go to Romans dot com, and now it can be open to the entire world. I guess one <laughs> kind of the few benefits of the strange times, weren't?
0: So, what I wanted to come back around to, if you don't mind, is this: tell me where it hurts. What are some ways that you think people could say that who might shy away a little bit from the? What I'm trying to differentiate in my own mind are those people that depression scares them so much, mental illness scares them so much, that they don't even know if they have the capacity to listen. And when you say, tell me where it hurts, that suggests the belief that they do have the capacity to listen. So
1: that's correct. It does assume that someone wants to know what's really going on. It It is an undertaking that has to be seriously taken with love and awareness that you might hear things you don't want to hear.
0: Sure. Well, and the other thing is our, when you're married or partnered or just together or you're parent-child or whatever, I mean, the, there's so many intertwinings of your lives that it's hard. I find it hard for people. I work with couples a lot, and I, I find it hard for them to sometimes realize they can allow a spouse or a partner to listen to something or to talk about something, and they just listen rather than, well, do you realize how that's going to affect me? They listen with an agenda. And so it sounds like you're very much saying, don't listen with an agenda. Just listen. listen to hear whatever is being said.
1: And I think we have a unique opportunity right now during COVID to do this because I've noticed people saying, "Are you? You know, how are you doing? Are you okay? No, really. How are you doing? Are you okay? Mm-hmm. And they mean it. And they really want to hear, are you okay during this awful, awful time that we're in? And that gives me great hope for the future. I think there's an awareness and compassion that I haven't seen before about depression and anxiety in particular.
0: Well, maybe that's also a function of our lives slowing down and, you know, then we're actually maybe seeing things more clearly. I've had a lot of people tell me that. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking your time to talk with me and my listeners and on self-work. I was highly suggest Modern Madness to go out and get it. I will also get your other books because I just really, I learned myself and I'm always curious and want to learn more. So I really appreciate it. Anything else that you want to say or talk about?
1: Um, yes, I would love to know the name of your book.
0: Oh, <laughs> sure. Oh, it's called Perfectly Hidden Depression. Great. How to break free from the perfectionism that masks your depression.
1: Oh boy, do I need that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's really, it's more
0: of a workbook. It's got 60 exercises that I've done with people through the years, and I hope it's helpful. So it's, it's, you know, it's not a New York Times bestseller, but I never thought it would be. And so it's just going to chug along as the word gets out and it's doubled. It's
1: It's, it's, necessary.
0: Yeah. So it's chugging. It's chugging.
1: Well, that's what life is.
0: Yeah, isn't it, though? It's been delightful. Thank you so very much.
1: Thank you, Margaret. I've really enjoyed this. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. I hope you enjoyed that and learned from it as much as I did. I will tell you that Terry got back with me personally, not through her publicist, and told me how much she'd enjoyed it. Because I think I took the time to ask her questions that not many people have asked and to delve into exactly the depth of what she was talking about in her book. These conversations, the one I had a few weeks ago and this one with Terry Cheney, I'm going to continue and I'm going to be asking questions that aren't just the Pat questions that all the other interviews ask her. I'm going to ask the questions that I think you want answers to and that as a therapist and psychologist, I'm most interested in finding out as I take the lead from the author about what they're willing to reveal and what might still need to be private. But so much about mental illness is kept secret. I believe that here on Self Work, we need to understand what's really going on with people who are depressed or anxious or have bipolar disorder. There's lots of ways of reaching out to me. My website is DrMargaretRutherford.com. And one of the things I want to remind you of is a lot of times I get emails asking me questions. And I realized, you know, I've done a podcast on that. So if you're curious, you can always go to my website, Dr. And there's a little search icon at the far right. And you can just hit that and then write affair or borderline mother or whatever your question is about. And you might just find the answer there. You can also subscribe there and you'll get my weekly newsletter, which is a wonderful way to keep up with everything, a very easy way. You'll also get my weekly blog post as well as this podcast and a little news about what's coming up. But that's it, a weekly newsletter, I promise. My own book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, How to Break Free from the Perfectionism that Masks Your Depression, is available everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But, you know, these days you might really want to go to your local bookstore and buy a copy there. Our local economies are suffering, so that would help. The book is really more of a workbook as it has 62 exercises in it, and it leads you through a very careful and guided journey to try to address whatever kind of perfectionistic tendencies you have, or just looking at your childhood and deciding, you know, what rules do I want to keep that I'm following, or what rules do I not? And also things like developing an emotional trauma timeline. So I think the book can be helpful in many ways. Please feel free to join me at my Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash self-work. I'm over on Instagram as well. I have my Facebook is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And of course, you can always find me here at Self Work. Thank you for being here. Take very good care and please stay safe and mentally healthy. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.